Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. We have no shortage of wildlife news these days, and little of it seems to be positive. We're in the middle of what some describe as a worldwide extinction crisis. Here in the United States, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just announced that nearly two dozen species, from the ivory-billed woodpecker to two freshwater fish species, are now officially extinct. Drought in the Southwest also is pressuring wildlife and could force changes not only in their populations, but in where they're found. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. The National Park System is home to countless species of wildlife, from the robust marine life found around coral reefs at places such as Buck Island Reef National Monument in the Caribbean and Biscayne National Park, to the bison, wolves, grizzly bears, and more wildlife found at Yellowstone National Park, America's Serengeti. But how are wildlife in the parks doing? To explore that and other questions surrounding wildlife, we're joined by Dr. Joel Berger, a senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society, as well as the Barbara Cox Wildlife Chair at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Welcome to The Traveler, Joel. Kurt, it's great to be here. I've been tracking you guys for a bit and I'm always impressed. I appreciate that. And uh, I think I've been reading your research papers for um, longer than a traveler's been around. So um, I'm, I'm glad you're able to, to find time to join us. You know, before we get into the nitty gritty of some of these wildlife issues, you've studied wildlife around the world. So much so that you've probably gone through more than a few passports with all the stamps from the different countries you've entered. Which region would you say is your favorite and why? Ooh, um, well, outside of the U.S., I would probably say either the Arctic or the Tibetan Plateau. And I lean towards the Tibetan Plateau. Not only is it high on average, about 15,000 feet, but it is wild. It's Western China, no extinctions, a myriad of species, many of which people don't know that much about. Wild yaks um, are the totem of the Tibetan people. Well, there may be 14 million domestic yaks in the world, maybe 10 or 15,000 wild yaks. There are snow leopards. There are a variety of other species that people don't know much about because the area is generally closed. And so I would say in terms of discovery and scientific challenge and conservation challenge, that area is uh, remarkable. It does sound like a remarkable area and, and one that um, we're finding in fewer and fewer places around the world as, as the, the world's population continues to grow. There, there's no doubt we're losing the remote. We're losing big chunks of wild habitat. There are very few places that remain that we can claim that are big and wild, where they haven't had invasive species, where the animals don't run because they don't know people. They don't recognize that humans are dangerous. But this also points to why conservation of smaller fragments or other areas is really important, because we're not growing more habitat, we're just eroding the habitat. Yeah, we really are. And of course, uh, Dr. E.O. Wilson has called for um, I believe at least 30% of the world to be preserved for nature. Um, he made that call some, some years ago. How are we doing in that? So I, I think that um, Professor Wilson 
called for 50%, and then to try to um, make it a little bit more realistic, um, the 30-30 goal has become now a more amenable target across many countries. How are we doing? We're inching our way there, but for every step we take, we're neutralizing it by what we're losing as well. And so it's a slow progress. One could easily become discouraged. You know, we're pushing on uh, close to 8 billion people. You know, our footprints are not kind and gentle on biological diversity, but we are making some strides. Um, we're not at the 30-30. There's a goal for that, you know, nine years from now to be there across many nations. Um, but it's a bit of a struggle if I'm being realistic. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, what, a year ago when we heard about how many millions of birds we've lost since the 70s. We just heard here in the U.S. about uh, 22 species that have officially been dubbed extinct. What about the world's wildlife populations? Do we have a, a number on how many species we've lost or how many we're in danger of losing? We, we continue to... Um, so I'm going to give you a duality in terms of my answer, Kurt. So yes, we are losing species. We continue to have wildlife declines across many, many um, parts of the world. They're pretty dramatic. Um, Elizabeth Colbert's um, book on the sixth uh, extinction, absolutely true. Part of the places where we're gaining, in other words, trying to in reverse these losses, has been through what's been refer, uh, called in a more popular sense, rewilding, it's reintroductions. We've done this in places in Africa. We're doing this in, like in Malawi, we've added lions that have been extinct there for quite a while. In other parts of um, the world, particularly in Europe, which of course is Western and developed, there's been a rebound for species like brown bears, for wolves, uh, efforts to uh, maintain lynx, um, to reintroduce some um, uh, additional raptors, for setting in place different kinds of grazing regimes, which will be popular for wildlife. But in other parts of the world where we have still people who don't have access to electricity, people who don't have access to water, as you and perhaps much of uh, the listening audience realizes, yeah, we've got a long way to go um, in terms of equity. I guess one of the, the, the positives, along with the ones that you've mentioned, is uh, over in the Carpathians, where um, they're returning bison or, or wisnet, as I believe they're called in Europe. And, and here in the U.S., of course, we've got the American Prairie Reserve up in um, northern Montana and what they're trying to do in terms of bringing back not just the bison, but the collaborative native species from you know, wildlife to, to bird life to, to vegetation. And, of course, the Interior Department also is studying places in the national park system and perhaps uh, other federal properties where bison could be returned. I guess that's got to be positive news. It is. In fact, um, if we go back to the 70s, in reality, the only small populations of bison that we had were Yellowstone. And now we look across a much broader swath. And while we have almost a half a million bison in North America, most of those, of course, are for uh, meat production. But we do have uh, free ranging herds in places like Alaska, where wood bison have been reintroduced 
in the Yukon, we have several thousand wild bison. In other parts of Canada, we have wild bison. As you mentioned, the American Prairie Reserve is a potential, well, it's an actual spot that is doing well and gaining more momentum. And there are other sites uh, within the US where things are, are, are doing a little bit better for a species as large as a bison or for species like grizzly bears and wolves. And although contentious, um, if you go to the 70s in the Western US, we didn't have wolves. If you look at grizzly bears, you had three or 400 in Yellowstone, and that was about it. Uh, well, uh, sorry. Um, and then in the Northern uh, Continental Divide system, um, there were some, but now we have some 1800 grizzly bears, an approximate uh, similar number of wolves, although with the kind of hunting that's going on. Wisconsin, Montana, and Idaho, depending on where one sits with the spotting scope, with a camera or a rifle, uh, there are different opinions. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I visited the American Prairie Reserve uh, a couple of years back, and um, they said that they're they're noticing, you know, grizzly bears moving down onto the, the plains of Montana, not too far from where they are. And I believe they've had wolves cross their, um, their properties. Um, so there, there is some good news out there, although it, it's certainly a challenge on a almost daily basis, it seems. It does. In, and I'm in agreement with you. Um, as somebody who thinks that biological diversity is important for ecological health and for humans that go hand in hand, to me, it's not just a wildlife issue. It's an issue that deals with landscape health. You know, and one of the... Um landscapes that's not doing too well, I would say, in the national park system is Everglades National Park. I mean, that might be the uh, poster child for invasive species with what um, Burmese python and other reptilian species have done there, as well as the invasive vegetation, the melaleuca trees, the Brazilian peppers, reordering that uh, that landscape or redesigning it, perhaps. Yeah, that one is a um, particularly sobering story, and hopefully it's not at the forefront, but at the back end. But as you, as you mentioned, and probably as many of the readers, realize, uh, the listeners can recall, is about a dozen years ago, you had maybe eight or nine species of mammals um, that were doing reasonably well, and then with the pythons, Almost all of those species have plummeted down about 90 or 95 percent because the pythons have been so effective at removing mammals. Um, but it's a sad, um, it, it, it's a devolution of a food web. Yeah, it's, it's truly shocking. And um, later this year, or actually early next year, um, myself and a couple of my colleagues at The Traveler are going to spend a week in Everglades um, taking a look at those problems close up. There's been much discussion about the sixth mass extinction. How far along are we towards it? Tough question. Yeah, it, it's, it's a good question. And, and it really is the question of our time. We have opportunities to ask ourselves, what do we want the world to look like 10 years from now? And 20 is maybe about as far out as we can realistically go. And knowing what the patterns and the trends have been, we have a lot of work to do if we want to reverse what we're doing. Yes, we do have protected areas, national parks. We do have posted stamps. Some are small, some are big. Many are not connected. Um, we have amphibians. We have 
invasive uh, fish, we have invasive amphibians, we certainly have things like zebra mussels, we have cheat grass, a lot of things that are having impacts that are not the direct killing, but it's the indirect, indirect consequence of the changes that we have made. Clearly, we can't have just a fortress mentality and close everything out. And so trying to be prudent and ask ourselves, what do we want it to look like? And how do we get there? And who do we motivate? And who are the decision makers? Those are the big challenges. And, and certainly there, there are um, more um, angles to that problem than uh, we have time to discuss today. So I'll try and stick to the uh, terrestrial challenges. Um, you mentioned migrational corridors, connectivity, there's the organization, the Wildlands Network, which is trying to build more connectivity into places such as the uh, the Southeast. And um, there, there's the effort in Florida right now, the Florida Wildlife Corridor. You worked, I believe, on the migrational corridors for the pronghorn in Wyoming. How did that turn out? Has that um, been able to, to stand up to um, the decades, the years that have gone by? Yeah, so really interesting. Um, so, so I want to start off by giving a, credit, a a compliment for whatever it's worth. But the uh, Florida Equivalent Game Commission has done remarkable in terms of legislating in, to the extent that they can, ways to connect these patches, some small, some large habitats, to keep the flow of different animal species that need to be able to move through protected lands to connect populations. And so that's been great. I wish more states or more federal properties could do that. So that's the first part in the, the uh, kudo. Um, Path of the pronghorn. So pronghorn are, um, for those who don't really know much about um, the species, it, it's a hooked mammal. Um, it's the fastest, second fastest uh, land mammal that we have in the world. It can run about 60, a little bit less than 60 miles an hour. Um, they migrate from an area um, in the Yellowstone ecosystem from the Tetons up to 200 miles one way in the fall and then back in the spring. And so in the Tetons, the snow, at least pre-climate change has been pretty heavy. So the animals have to leave and migrate. And so the National Forest Service through a Management Protection Act, a Forest Protection Act, sanctioned an area about 40 miles long, one mile wide as a protected migration area. And so it's, it's called a Path of the Pronghorn because it designates place and a species and gives the, uh, basically describes the concept that these animals need a way to move. Unfortunately, they really need about uh, 80 miles of protected habitat so that they can migrate unfettered. And across some of the federal lands in um, Wyoming, particularly in the Pinedale um, region, there's a couple of different natural gas areas where thousands and thousands of wells have been built, uh, built and this is causing some difficulties for the pronghorn. And so what we have is the nation's only federally protected migration corridor, 40 miles long, one mile wide. So that's the good news. And it served as a basis to um, energize other groups to try for something similar. Uh, what, what's the bad news? I mean, you mentioned um, the, the heavy snows in the Yellowstone ecosystem would kind of encourage the pronghorn that it's time to move south. And of course, with climate change, 
there's projections that those heavier snows will be getting um, less and less heavy. Um, might pronghorn lose the need to, to migrate? So the bad news on that is that we continue to erase habitat, even though natural gas we all use, I certainly use it, I fly, I drive, you know, I'm part of an issue, I'm part of the problem. There are ways we don't want to lose that important wintering habitat that the pronghorn moved to. And that to me is the critical issue that we have to be assured that they have summer range that they can go to and that they have winter range that they can escape to without incurring all of the additional costs that go with roads, that go with developing uh, gas fields, and that go within the harassment that, that occurs um, potentially to the pronghorn at that time of the year. So there's, there's good and the bad, and there's bad, but there's been progress for sure. Path of the pronghorn was only designated in 2008. And although we haven't had great success with other federally protected corridors, the federal government across all agencies, all agencies in the federal government do think about corridors. Um, and so there's been some progress. Not everything is implemented, but at least it's on the table. That's good to hear. We're talking today about wildlife issues with Dr. Joel Berger, a senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society, as well as the Barbara Cox Wildlife Chair at Colorado State University. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Hey everyone, our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, is offering a great deal to their members. Now, through October 31st, 2021, get up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity loan. Apply at interiorfcu.org for membership and a loan. Membership is required. Equal housing lender. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. 
We're back talking wildlife issues with Dr. Joel Berger, a senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society, as well as the Barbara Cox Wildlife Chair at Colorado State University. You know, Joel, you're talking about migration corridors and the need for um, more protected areas for wildlife. You know, some years ago, I was talking to Dan Wenk at the time, the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, and, and I'd asked him whether the era of large-scale conservation had passed us by, that it was uh, part of history. And, you know, he's sitting at Mammoth Hot Springs in the middle of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which, you know, depending on how you count the acres, is anywhere from 18 million to, I think I've seen upwards of 30 million acres between park service lands, forest service lands, BLM lands, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Are we past the period of large-scale conservation or are organizations such as American Prairie Reserve with what they're trying to do, knitting public and private and tribal lands together, examples that we can still accomplish things on a large scale in terms of wildlife? Kurt, you're where you are because you ask good, hard questions. <laughs> this would be amongst them. <laughs> um, are we past the era? Um, at some level, we are. And at some level, we're not. And I know that sounds really iffy. So the level where we're past it is from human equity issues. In the past, we've gone in and we've taken land, indigenous lands. We don't do that. Uh, at least I hope we don't do that anymore. If we look at areas where in North America or in, in the US, um, which includes Alaska and Hawaii, of course, if we look to areas that are low population density, and so that would mean maybe the Great Basin, the area from the Rockies over to the Sierras, that's a relatively low density area. I think Nevada is maybe nine people per square mile, but most of that's Las Vegas and Reno. Uh, similarly along the Wasatch Front. So you've got these huge chunks, almost 400 miles across from Salt Lake to Reno that are low density areas. Most of it is federal land. So there are some opportunities to maybe mix in US Department of Agriculture, which is forest service lands primarily, USDI uh, Department of Interior lands, which would be Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service and BLM. Um, and then certainly massive swaths in Alaska. And so getting people on board is important. Otherwise we're gonna see what we've seen with wolf reintroduction in certain places shoot, shovel, shut up. We're not gonna have people who are all that enthused about doing things better for biological diversity per se. But if we can pick areas where the influence on people um, is perhaps less and the people are willing to work with broader levels of landscape conservation to do things a little bit more friendly, those could be some good areas where I can see large level, broad level conservation still working. In the areas where we have high density populations, it, prob it probably is too late. You know, um, a few years back, I was working on a project specific to bison and looked across the, the, the West and the Midwest on, on where we might see more bison on the landscape. And of course, you could go back to Oh, I think it goes back to the 1930s when there was a proposal to create a, a national park in Nebraska or, or one in um, Kansas, um, I think came along in the 60s. 
kind of like a, a prairie national park. Um, they've got one up in Canada to um, preserve those species, vegetation, flora, fauna, whatnot. And of course, if you look at um, South Dakota, you've got Wind Cave National Park with its bison herd. And Wind Cave's, I think, only 35,000 acres. And Badlands National Park um, to the east, not too far. Um, and they've got uh, a good number of bison there. But then you, you, you zoom out, so to speak, and you notice the Buffalo Gap National Grasslands. And talking about federal lands, the national grasslands managed by the U.S. Forest Service offer millions of acres. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt National Park up in North Dakota, as you probably know, is completely surrounded by a national grasslands. But at the same time, you know, a lot of those grasslands are, are um, managed for livestock grazing. And so there would have to be a, uh, a pretty big shift in, in priorities and, and public opinion to, to open them up to, to bison and wolves and, and grizzly bears. But they are large chunks of land. There are some remarkable opportunities. I mean, Flint Hills, Kansas, another, uh, you know, potentially great area. Um, certainly, so I had lived in Western South Dakota for five years and worked with bison. I'm not, not even sure you knew that. And so Buffalo Gap National Grasslands, remarkable areas, you know, with curlews and some sandhill cranes. And I think I read one of your papers working on that project, or <laughs> at least one. <laughs> All right, sorry, I wasn't trying to do any no, struggle. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, um, you live old enough, you read a lot of stuff. <laughs> it, it does seem that more Americans are becoming more interested in returning species in a way that they can be managed in the semi-wild or wild. It will take some time and some effort, but we certainly see a recasting of our role with nature. Just as, you know, Al Gore's book on climate change came out in 89 and, you know, 30 years later, essentially, people accept it. You know, there are very few doubters now. It took a long time. It's part of our lexicon. We recognize that. Biodiversity is not on the same page as climate change, and it should be. It needs to be. You know, we're losing habitat and we're losing species at a far greater rate because of humans than the indirect or some will claim direct effects of climate change. But biological diversity needs to be up there at the same level. I think our current administration does get that. I think John Kerry gets that. Joe Biden certainly gets that. And the American public is moving in that direction. And not everybody, and not everybody needs to. It just needs to be on the plate, on the platter for a discussion as to how we can dampen our footprints and do things a little bit uh, better. Yeah, yeah. Talking about national parks and extinction, can national parks slow it down in terms of providing that that protected habitat that some of these species need, or are the the parks too small outside of a handful and, and too far apart to provide that connectivity that you need to avoid biological islands? So national parks are, as we all know, I mean, where do we want... Many people want to go to national parks because they're the best of what we have. We can see things there. There are geological features. There are uh, you know, some cultural icons, the geology, and also the wildlife slash biological diversity. The more direct answer to your question, Kurt, is that national parks in and of themselves are probably too small 
except as you note, some exceptions in the West where we have big, big chunks, greater Yellowstone or Yellowstone and the Tetons combined, you know, some places uh, maybe in the Sierras and then you get up into Alaska, Crown of the Continent, another example, but they're disconnected parks. And so to really do things better, I think it's important, it's incumbent on us to use the parks to think about reservoirs as biological diversity and then to spawn out from there and find ways to connect with the adjacent lands, whether they be Army Corps, whether they be military lands, whether they be um, uh, in indigenous lands, whether they be forest service lands, but we have to be connected because we know as we have smaller and smaller fragments or patches surrounded in an, a sea that is not um, conducive, then the extinction rates go up. Invasive species come in more rapidly. So what does the park services role become? And I'm, I'm alluding to what's going on at Isle Royal National Park in Lake Superior, where the lack of ice bridges has prevented new wolves from reaching the island. And so the, the wolves that were there um, dwindled down to two. They suffered with genetic uh, um, impediments, um, inbreeding and whatnot. The moose took off. They were overgrazing, overbrowsing the, the forest there at Isle Royal. The Park Service made the tough decision to physically bring in wolves to expand the, the gene pool. Is that something we're going to see the Park Service required to do in more places? Become basically open-air zoo managers? So we're faced with the very difficult challenge. Um, I can't remember your exact words, but you're right. Um, we have to make some hard decisions. If if our goal is to main what, maintain what we have and restore what we have lost, so that duality, maintain what we have and restore what we lost, then we will become managers. To some extent, we probably should be doing that case by case. On the other hand, we can't always maintain, we can't always restore. And so at some level, we're gonna have to accept again, on a case-by-case -case basis, these changes that are occurring. You know, ecology is not stable. There's a dynamism that occurs. We don't have stable equilibriums. We do have change. Unfortunately, with, you know, our human population such that it is and our footprint such that it is, the rapidity of those changes is increasing. But I like the idea of maintaining what we have, and to the extent possible, restoring. I mean, we've done that in lots of different ways. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to see how things go forward um, at Isle Royale and, and other places. You're working on a new book. Um, you're holed up in a, a nice cabin in a nice place in southern Utah. Um, it's about uh, people and the wildlife, is it? I am in a nice place. I'm in uh, a, a small little valley about 45 minutes out of Moab, Utah, southeast Utah, canyon country, Colorado River, Green River. It's a nice spot to hide out. I'm on a sabbatical. It's a writing sabbatical. I'm focused on how we as humans play our arc of recreation. Where do we go and what do we do? And how is that affecting our biological diversity? And so, for instance, we know that National Geographic has called Moab 
the biking capital of the world. And in the springtime, which is March and April in this part of the world, which is spring break for many colleges and high schools, it's the equivalent of Fort Lauderdale on the east. You have about 100,000 mountain bikers who descend here. And many of them come out of Washington, Montana, Idaho, but some are coming from Germany, from Switzerland, from UK, some from Japan, getting out of cold weather and heading to the deserts. And it's a pretty massive influx which is occurring. And if you take one species in particular, which is a cultural icon, desert bighorn sheep, it's the most noted petroglyph in the Southwest. Petroglyphs are is rock art uh, engravings. And desert bighorns are the ones that are most featured culturally by indigenous Americans. And when is gestation, late gestation for bighorns? It's the springtime when you're getting your 100,000 mountain bikers. But on top of that, we have bungee jumpers. On top of that, we have highliners. We have people on cliffs. We have adventure sports. We have jeeps. We have drones. We have helicopter sightseeing. We have aerial sightseeing. So what I'm trying to do is to put all this into um, some sort of perspective. I'm not there, but that's what I'm writing about. I'm not saying close off lands. I'm not saying open up lands. I'm just saying we need to figure out some way where we can be a little bit kinder on these pregnant, in this case, pregnant females, but on all of the species when um, they're in a period where their biological needs are critical. So I'm trying to find ways to look through the eyes of animals. And then also though, look through the eyes of people. I mean, people in Moab, they care about the sights and the sounds and the smells, and they also make money and they have a right to try to live from the land and the parks. But this little town of maybe seven or 8,000 people gets four to 5 million visitors a year. It's a pretty crazy scene. It is very crazy. And I think uh, some of the locals, including some of the town officials, are kind of pushing back a little bit on it. And I know last year um, during the COVID that they, they didn't want people coming to Moab because the, the medical facilities were, were small. And I think they only have, what, 11, 11 beds in their ICU unit and only a couple of ventilators. Now, um, wildlife issues, you know, they're not um, exclusive to the Moab area, southeastern Utah. I know Yellowstone, one of the most um, controversial issues that raged for years was winter access and snowmobiles. And the arguments went back and forth in terms of what caused the most disturbance for wildlife. Was it the snowmobiles with their, their throttles wide open or was it the, the cross-country skiers who perhaps sneak up on wildlife? Any thoughts on that question? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm smiling because many of us who recreate, which is probably almost every person who's listening to this podcast, <laughs> uh, we, we tend to think the motorized, um, motorized access is the most negative. And sure, trails are impacted, blah, blah, blah. But it's the same is uh, occurring if we have dogs outside of national parks, but dogs running around. Um, that's an issue. Uh, E-bikes are an issue. Forgetting e-bikes, even mountain bikes have uh, at least the same kind of impact on species like bears, maybe more detrimental, because a lot of wildlife get used to sounds, but they don't get used to, as you said, Kurt, um, 
somebody on skis or somebody hiking or somebody on a uh, on a mountain bike that makes no noise and all of a sudden the species um, the individual from the species might turn around and then they run anywhere from 100 uh, yards to a mile as a consequence so animals do habituate and it's just not um, the non-motorized that um, can have these kind of impacts. And, and let me go slightly further. So um, you mentioned the motorized and snow machine issues in, in Yellowstone. And of course, that was a, a, a massive contentious issue. And the studies that have been done show that bison habit uh, get used to the sounds so they can be feeding as snowmobiles go fast, but their stress levels are much higher. And so you can look at their hormones, their adrenal secretions, and you find that, hey, they're not looking very stressed, but inside their hearts are beating faster and their hormones are um, at higher levels indicative of stress than animals that are not. So you can't even just look at an animal and think, all right, I'm having no impact when you might be. Exactly, exactly. Well, Joel, it's been fun. Um, we, we've covered a lot of ground and, and skimmed much of it because we don't have the time. But you know, we were talking about 30 by 30 or, or 50%. And um, I, I'm going to put you on the spot um, before we end this conversation. But there's been a lot of talk that with the crowds heading to national parks and Yellowstone is overwhelmed at times, Zion is overwhelmed at times, Rocky Mountain, people are complaining that the congestion is just ruining the park experience. There have been calls for for more national parks. And, and a few weeks back in, in August, I wrote a piece about um, a, a drive to um, turn the Sierra National forest between Yosemite and Kings Canyon into range of light national monument uh, under the park service. Any thoughts on where you'd like to see a, a new national park property that would do, do some good. I mean, you're in Utah. What about the San Rafael swell, which back in 1935, I think was proposed to be Wayne Wonderland national park. <laughs> so you're right. You, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, <laughs> Uh, you threw a you, lot you, out there. You, you trigger me. So range of light, John Muir. Yes, um, uh, that'd be great. Um, the one that particularly annoys me is that we have a 10 by 10 square mile area called Great Basin National Park. It's, it's about 100 square miles. It's a posted stamp. I mean, it, it's a pinprick in an area where you have 400 miles between Salt Lake and, and uh, Reno, most of it public land, that we can't do better and sustain at a large scale some sort of a national park in that kind of a realm. Yes, we have livestock there. I'm not even saying remove all the livestock. You know, you look at the Tetons, livestock were um, uh, factored, grandfathered in, in some way. You know, so I think if we look to the future, we can find creative ways now that will benefit. Last thought on this one is, every single national park, at least I can, I can name at least 20, where the communities that are now referred to as gateway communities, oppose national park, oppose the standing. And yet there's not a single one now where people would say, oh, we oppose it. There are economic benefits to the local people that come forth and the local people who live there today would be uh, staunch advocates than removing the boundaries and saying, let's declassify it or decommission it. And so I think there are lots of ways to think only, not only about land conservation, but having healthy human economies also benefiting. Yeah, and I think we have to be careful um, when you go down that road. I mean, one thing that, that irks me um, is the, the calls to Congress that 
every dollar spent on a national park service um, generates $10 for the local economy. And I think that misses the point of why the national parks exist. The protection and the preservation that they offer out there, I think those are much higher qualities than than the economic return that is um, bantied about so much because you start talking about the economics and it builds on more economics and more pressures on the national parks um, as gateway communities expand. Yeah, I, um, that's a good point. I'm glad you make it because we should not be putting a, 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 a dollar value on each acre or on each species because if we go that direction, we're going to lose. Well, Joel, it's been a pleasure talking today and um, I'm looking forward to your book. Uh, do you have a, a publication date? Uh, or is it still, uh, I know how writing goes. I, I've written I, I've written numerous books, um, but they take a while. It's usually about a three year um, and I'm at the very beginning. I'm not, I'm not at first base, I'm at the batter's box. Okay, okay. Well, hopefully we'll connect uh, be, before you get to first base. It's been a great pleasure discussing these issues with you today and uh, look forward to catching up down the road. Thanks so much, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be discussing recent news events in the park system, such as the effort by federal authorities to crack down on bad behavior by Yellowstone National Park visitors, the continuing lack of a Senate-confirmed National Park Service director, and the possibility of turning the Chesapeake Bay area into a unit of the National Park System. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. See you in the parks. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PotreroGroup.com. That's P-O-T. R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. 
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides a background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.